0: Through 54 tonight, chapter 4, verses 43 through 54 tonight. um, I've titled this message uh, Spectacle or Savior. Um, I was thinking about as I was reading through the text, and you know what it is I know is coming in the book of John, and how for some people Jesus is merely a spectacle. And for others, he is really the Savior. I was thinking to myself, you know, what's the difference between someone who comes to Jesus in desperation and need versus someone who wants to come to have an experience of his power and see the miraculous done? What's the difference between someone who comes for hope in desperation where Jesus is everything versus someone who comes for the sense of a thrill or excitement or to be a part of some experience. And really, the what makes the difference is the motivation of the heart. Because both things can look the same on the outside. You can have two people gathering in a place for worship, but the desire of the heart and the motivation for why those people are gathered can be very different from one another. Someone can be coming because they genuinely love the Lord, they see their desperate need for him, and they're here to make much of him and worship him and be reminded of him being everything to them. And other people gather together because they just want to see the show. They just want to experience something. And this becomes an issue that is developed, especially in John chapter 5 and chapter 6, it becomes real obvious but the, the seeds in the beginning of it, I believe, are happening in our text tonight. And we're going to see the difference between Jesus being a spectacle to some and him being the true Savior to another. And so I want to read John chapter 4, verses 43 through 54 tonight. And then notice just these two things, the spectacle and the Savior. And then I want to specifically look at three things that mark the life of someone who looks at Jesus as the Savior in particular. So John chapter 4, beginning in verse 43, after the two days, you remember he was there in Samaria for two days, Jesus and his disciples, after he's ministered to the woman at the well and the people in the town. After the two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come to Judea, or come from from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus, so Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as he was going down, the servants met him and told him that his son was recovering I believe that in the text we see Jesus put on display for some as being a mere spectacle, and then to the ruler he is seen as being the Savior. Um, The spectacle is how the crowd in Galilee beholds him. After the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown— so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So in verses 43 up through halfway through 46, I believe we see that the Galileans see Jesus merely as a spectacle. Verse 43 begins to set the stage. Jesus' circuit has been made. He started in Galilee. He went to Jerusalem. He went to Samaria. Now he's back in Galilee. So he's effectively made his circuit all throughout the nation of Israel at this time. And where he effectively will spend the next 16 months of his ministry in his Galilean ministry. Um, and verse 44 tells us that he's going to the place where he knows a prophet has no honor. And, and um, Luke chapter 4 tells us, gives us the story where Jesus you know, tell, says in Nazareth, you know, I have come, is written about me in the scroll of prophet Isaiah, that I have fulfilled it. And the people respond to him, trying to push him off the cliff, and it says that he just, like, departs out of their midst. And he said, so that scene has already happened. So, so John's gospel is written in a sense where he jumps large chunks of time. Um, he's not so much worried about, like, the time frame, but rather he'll, he'll focus in on one particular scene, draw out a bunch of theological and doctrinal truths. He'll jump, a scene, jump time, focus in on another scene, and that's kind of how Go- John's gospel is largely written. He's writing theologically to prove, as we saw in chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, that people might see the signs and know that he is the Christ, the Son of Man, and that by believing in him, they would um, be saved, so, he, his, his goal is to draw attention to specifically to these signs that Jesus is doing that, that would draw someone to believe in him for salvation. So, he's going back to the place where he knows he has no honor. In verse 45 when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. Now, I don't think that we should assume that they welcomed him as a sign of genuine faith and salvation. In fact, I think it's the opposite for several reasons. Number one, as you turn back to chapter 2, verse 23, 24, and 25, right? So, in chapter 4, verse 45 These Galileans welcomed him because they saw the signs he had done in Jerusalem at the feast because they were at the feast. Well, in chapter 2, we get an idea of Jesus doing this and who was there. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So the the crowd of the Galileans in verse 45 of chapter 4 is identified as being in the crowd in chapter 2, verse 23 through 25, as people who saw his miracles, saw the signs, believed, but Jesus specifically did not entrust himself to those people because he knew what was inside those people. Not only that, but we're going to see later on in chapter 6 in Jesus' Galilean ministry that Jesus indicts this group of people specifically, the Galileans, in the fact that they had seen him perform the miracle of the loaves and the fishes. And he tells them in chapter 6, verse 26, truly truly i say to you you are seeking me not because you saw signs because you ate your fill of the loaves you're not you're not following me because of who i am and what you see me doing you're following me because i fed you you're just coming to get food You're just coming to see the signs and the miracles. This is the same group of people that he has in this Galilean ministry. And then you'll see later on in chapter 6, verse 66, after Jesus confronts them and their motivation for following him, after this many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So for those whom Jesus is just merely a spectacle, the miracle man, the the showman, they're only in it to, to benefit from his miracles. They don't see him for who he truly is. And I believe this is why the Galileans welcome him, because they saw all the signs that he was doing. And not only that, not only for those two reasons, but it sets a perfect contrast to the ruler himself and how he responds and how he sees Jesus in particular. The Galileans rejoice in the spectacle of Jesus. The ruler rejoices because Jesus has the ability to conquer death. So we see then in verses 46 through 54, this ruler. Jesus is back in Cana, in Galilee, where he had made the water turn into wine. And at Capernaum there was a official whose son was ill. So he's back in Cana where water had become wine, where the miracle that Jesus had performed marked the end of the old covenant being fulfilled in himself. The ceremonies, the washings, all of that stuff, Jesus performs that miracle as a way to teach them and to show them that all of the types and shadows and everything that was in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, pointing forward to the coming Redeemer was now fulfilled in him. And so he's back in that very same place. Essentially the place where he is seen as the source of life. Life is not found in the law, it's not found in Moses, life is found in him. And we're going to see that that is indeed true as the ruler interacts with Jesus. He comes from Capernaum, which is 17 miles away, and it says that he's an official. Really, he's a royal official. This is not like just some guy that was well off. This guy was very well off, well-to-do, a position of power, a position of wealth, He is a royal official, a royal ruler. Many commentators believe that he probably served in the house of Herod himself. And so he comes from Capernaum, and we see why in verse 46, because his son was ill. He travels 17 miles, and he ascends to where Jesus is. He wants to and he believes that Jesus is the one that can provide life for his son who could die at any moment. This, this, to do this displays a tremendous amount of humility, which is the first mark of someone who sees Jesus as their Savior. You are marked by humility. Humility. Here is this man that amongst men, he's well off. He has money, he has power, he has position. And you look at Jesus, the carpenter's son, poor looking, just an average guy, and we see, but yet who's the one that has the real power? Who's the one that has the real position of authority? This man comes, and, and he, he, he travels 17 miles uphill to ascend to where Jesus is sitting, asking of him a favor. Come and provide life. It reminded me a lot of probably a story that you guys know very well, the story of um, Naaman that takes place in 2 Kings chapter 5. Naaman was a commander of the army of the king of Syria. He was a great man. With his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. But he has a servant, his, actually his wife has a servant girl, and says, Would that my Lord Naaman were the, to, the prophet to go to Samaria, and he, there's a prophet there that would cure him of leprosy. And so Naaman writes to the king of Syria about his desire to go. The king gives him a letter to go. And in verse 5 of chapter 5 of 2nd King, so he went taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. The, the man of military power and prowess is now stacked with loot. Because he's going to go buy the favor of this prophet. So he writes a letter, he gives a Naaman gives the letter to the king of Israel, saying, I hear you have a man here, clean me, clean me of my leprosy, heal me. And the king of Israel like tears his clothes and goes, What what do you want me to do? And Elisha hears of this. He hears that Naaman had come. And so Elisha then, or so then Naaman goes and makes his way to Elisha. And again, in verse nine of chapter five of second kings. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. He's this man of military power and prowess. He comes stacked with loot, and he has his entourage with him, chariots, horses. I mean, this is a royal display of humanity. And Elisha, what does he do? Doesn't even come outside to talk to him. Tells his servant, Go tell him to go wash in the Jordan seven times and you'll be restored and you'll be clean. And what's Naaman's response? He's angry. He goes away angry. Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. I thought that this man was going to come out. How This man totally disrespected me. I have, I'm a man of power. I have come with my money, I have come with my chariots, my horses, my entourage is with me, and this man won't even come out and talk to me in person. Doesn't he know who I am? I'm out of here. Forget this guy. And his servant comes up to him and says, My father, it is a great word that the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said, to you wash and be clean? Are you kidding me? You would rather wash in these other rivers? You want to be cleaned of your leprosy? All you got to do is go wash in the Jordan River seven times. Why won't you do it? Your pride has blinded you. I'm telling you, only the humble can listen to the word of the Lord and hear it and obey. And what does he do? So he went down, dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child and he was clean. Only the humble. If We stay in our pride. There's no room for Jesus to be seen as the Savior, to to listen to the word of God. This official, he displays humility. You you want me to leave Capernaum and walk to Cana seven miles? Okay. You want me to walk uphill to see him? Okay. Humility is the first marker. The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life, as we read in Proverbs 22, 4. The second thing that we see is this man is separate. There's a separation between him and the crowd. Jesus' response to him, right? The man had heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee. He went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. And Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The you there is plural. It's again, he's, it's like it, was like it was when he was talking to Nicodemus. He's looking at Demas, talking to Nicodemus, but he's indicting everybody around. And the same thing. He's looking straight at this official. He's talking to him, and he says, unless you all believe, unless you all see signs and wonders, you won't believe. It's as if he's asking him the question, are you like all of them? Do you demand a sign, a wonder, a miracle in order to believe? Is that why you're here? And what's his response? Sir, come down before my child dies. I, I'm, I'm not here for a sign. I'm not here for a wonder. I'm here for life. I don't know about all these people. I don't know the condition of their heart. I don't know why they're here. I don't know why they're happy to see you. I tell you, there's one reason why I'm happy to see you, because you can provide life. And my son is going to die. I'm, I'd, I'm not like them. The sign of someone who truly sees Jesus as their savior separates. They, they have humility, and they separate from the crowd, and they see that Jesus is the source of life, and they desperately want life from him. Come down, because my son can die at any moment. All of these, all of these miracles that are done you know, for the, in the physical way, they all represent spiritual realities, the, the 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 bringing back the dead to life the cleansing of the lepers the cleansing of the the paralytics the recovery of sight to blind all of these physical infirmities that are that are miraculously healed all represent man's spiritual condition of what Jesus really comes to do he provides spiritual life he provides spiritual sight he provides spiritual legs and feet and we keep that in mind as We're reading these types of miracles like this. This man, I'm not here for a sign. I'm here for life. This isn't about me. It's about my son, and you can make him live. Let me ask you something. Is that how you pray for people who you know that don't know Christ? Is that how you pray for your unsaved family members, friends, coworkers, and neighbors? Would you please come before they die? I mean, at any moment, I mean, in a way, right, we're all on the brink of death. None of us know when that that day is, that time is. I told you guys last week of the neighbor around the house that you know, around the corner from us that just died? None of us know. Is that how you pray for your, your sons, your daughters, your moms, your dads, your, your family members? Jesus, would you come to them? Like, would you please come to them? Because they're going to die. With, with, with Coming to him as the only source of hope of life. That's how we should be praying. That's how we should be pleading for our family members that don't know Christ. And thirdly, what we see is his belief. Humility, his separation, the difference between him and the others, and his belief, which seems to be something that continues to grow. It it tells us specifically in the text, verse 50, that he believed the word. And then again in verse 53, he believed all of his household. I would say there was a, a seed of belief, and that's what made him come in the first place. He believes. I'm telling you, nobody walks 17 miles uphill to, to somebody unless they believe the trip is worth it. And he comes, and it's, so his belief seems to be something that grows. And you see, what is, what is the component of belief? Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke and he went on his way. He believes and he leaves. Belief informs behavior. What is it that you, what is it that you truly believe about the word of God? Do you believe it? As if every time you open it, he is speaking to you. And believe it to the point where you actually live it out. I mean, what a, what a crazy idea, right? I actually live out my faith. I actually live out and apply the truths of God's word. As, he, as I open up his, as his Bible and he speaks to me, do I believe? Do I believe so much to the point that I live it out? You notice he doesn't, okay, go and your son will live. Okay, well, how am I supposed to know? It's kind of a long journey back home. I don't want to get there and see that he's still sick. Or, you know, I mean, he just, he takes Jesus at his word and he goes. Belief has a component of obedience to it. True belief. I'm telling you, people who see Jesus as their Savior believe his word and seek to be obedient to it. And then look at the grace that God shows him. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. When? Oh, about one o'clock yesterday. That's when I was talking to him. That's exactly when he said, verse 53, the father knew like he looked at the sundial on his wrist and he was like knew what time it was. He said to me, he said to himself, this is when Jesus said your son will live. This was the like the exact time. And th- and then what happens? And he himself believed, what? Believed again, no, believed more. He believed already that's why he came. He believed more that's why he left and was obedient. And then, with the grace of God, when it showed him that God had answered his prayer, that God had provided life, victory over death, oh, how he believed. And not just him, but his household. He did not keep this inside and silent, he could not but help but tell. What do you think he did when he, went, when he went all the way home, right? He's on the way home. His servants come and meet him at some point along the road. They say, your son is recovering. He's like, when? One o'clock. That's when I was talking to Jesus. And he goes home and goes, oh, that's pretty cool. Walks in the front door. Hey, what's for dinner? Oh, like, no. He goes home. And he goes, where's my son? My son's alive. The man healed my son. He gave him life from the dead. And he tells his whole household and everybody believes. It's like the woman at the well. She went back to her town and come and see the man that told me everything I ever did. That's what belief in the Savior, is Jesus being the Savior, does. He's not some spectacle. He's not there for some experience. He is life Itself. Those who see him as the Savior know him as such. And this is the second sign. Death is defeated. Verse 54 this is now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Death is defeated and overcome. There are three elements that help us distinguish the saved from the spectators. Humility as we come to Christ, separation from the world, and belief that informs our behavior and grows as we look forward to his coming. Let's pray. Father, we, we have these eyes. We see you as our Savior Not because, again, we have done anything on our own of ourselves, but because of what it is that you've done in us and for us. You've given us eyes to see. You've raised us from the dead. While we were yet dead in our trespasses, you forgave us. Lord, we thank you for your sovereign work. Give us, Lord, a heart that wants to speak of the life that you provide, that others might see you as Savior as well. Lord, for all the people that are out there that come to see you as a spectacle, the miracle man, the showman, to have some some experience, I pray that you would open up their eyes to see that Jesus will not be used in that way. May they turn, Lord, from approaching you with such blindness. Would you help them to do that and to see? Give them eyes to see you as the Savior and to respond to you with a heart of worship as you've done for people in this in the word and as you've done for us in our own lives as well. We thank you for tonight. As we turn and respond to you now in song, Lord, may we lift our voices to you in adoration and praise. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing one last song together?